Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above. Cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of Valuetainment. Today I'm sitting down with General McChrystal, four-star general who reported directly to Barack Obama and then he had a follow now, but afterwards he wrote a bunch of books on leadership. Some of his philosophies about leadership can help you in the world of business. There's only 14 four-star generals at any given time in the U.S. Army. And today I have the privilege and the honor to sit down with a four-star general, General McChrystal. General, thank you so much for making the time to be a guest on Valley Team. Pat, call me Stan, please. Stan, no problem. Absolutely. I just want to make sure I pay that respect because okay. when I was in the Army, you know, I was a Hummer mechanic. So, you know, on the Hummer mechanic, you would see, that's a colonel's Hummer. You know, that's a captain's, that's a lieutenant's. And then I would see general star, but I never met a general. So for me, it was always, you know, one day. And by the way, for you watching in the military, we used to say, be my little general. So brigadier general, which is a one star. Major General, which is a two-star, Lieutenant General, which is a three-star, and then a General is a four-star, which is you being one of them. Before you become a four-star, I'd like to go back and kind of find out trends. I want to know what was it like in your transition and you becoming who you are today. So let's go right all the way back to high school. Okay, if I was in high school with you, we're in 10th grade, 11th grade, who were you in high school? Yeah, in high school, I was very interested in sports. Okay. Played uh, football, basketball, and baseball in high school. You know, I wasn't a star or anything like that, but that was what you did. I was a pretty good student. I didn't study that much, uh, but, I, but I was smart enough to do okay. I was very interested in history. My father was uh, a soldier and he did two tours in Vietnam. And so during those years when, when he was gone, I was very interested in what was going on in the world. And of course, because I grew up in Arlington, Virginia in those years, mm -hmm. we were close to Washington, D.C. A lot of history happened there. When I was nine, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous speech at the Lincoln Memorial, I Have a Dream. I remember the night that Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency in 1974. I remember 1968 after the assassination of uh, Dr. King. Cities around the United States exploded, but Washington, D.C. exploded in violence and flames. And so history seemed not only something that I enjoyed reading about, but it was also up close. It felt tangible. How was that for you seeing that? Like, you know, it, and by the way, before that, were you history when you were younger? Like, would your father sit with you and say, son, let me tell you what happened at Gettysburg. Let me tell you who the hero was here. Was it that kind of a relationship with your father? Well, I was very close to my father, but it was my mother who did that. My mother was always interested in history, particularly mythology, Greek and Roman myths, the heroes. I remember being given books on William Wallace of Scotland, on Roland, on King Arthur and the Knights of the Round how Table. Old you, how old were you during these Oh, sorts? I was like four and five. Come and on. As soon as I started to read, at first I look at the pictures. Four or five, you're being given Greek mythology? Yeah, and we had this wonderful book. I still have it to this day. It's a, published in 1929. It's called Greek Tales for Tiny Tots. And it's got these simplified stories with hand-drawn pictures of Perseus, Theseus, Achilles, Atlas. And I still have it. I was read to it by my mother. Then I read it to my son when he was at a young age. And then recently I've started reading it to my first, my oldest granddaughter. When you're reading that, what, what did it do to you? Was it like, I want to one day be a hero? I want to one day be somebody that like what what inspirations did you get from reading those stories or was it, was it more your mom was sharing these stories because she wanted you to learn to certain values principles virtues that are going to stay with you for a long time to come 
What feelings were you getting from hearing these stories? Well, it's interesting. My mother never made that open. She never said, I want you to be like this. I think she liked the romance of it, but I also think that she was imbuing in me the idea that I could make a difference, that I could matter, and that it was within my grasp, but it was inside me, it was up to me if I was gonna be something. Because if you read the mythology, most of the, the heroes and heroines are flawed. They have mm -hmm. some great strengths and they have some great weaknesses. And usually their rise is up to something they've done and their fall maybe as well. It's personal responsibility. It's the idea that sometimes great events require you to step up and do things. And so I think that that's what she believed in and it rubbed off on me. Okay, so you're in high school, you're an athlete. You said you weren't really much with, you know, big with the grades, you're not really doing that well. So did you know at that point that the moment I turned 17, 18, I'm going, I'm gonna join the army. You know, is that something that you were thinking about? Yeah, from about age three, as soon as I was conscious, okay. I wanted to be okay. a soldier. People would ask me, what are you gonna be at? Probably age five, I said, I'm gonna be a soldier. And so when I was 17, I applied and was accepted to West Point where my father had gone to school. I didn't apply to any other colleges. Nowadays, kids apply to 10 or 12, and they've got safety ones. I had no plan. I applied to West Point, and then I didn't get accepted until the last week of May of my senior year. Mm -hmm. And you have to enter the first week of July. So in the spring, I'm going to West Point, and then I don't hear from them. And then you get to May, it starts to be a little white knuckle that maybe I wasn't going to get to do what I'd always dreamed of, but it worked out. So when you did, was there that moment of, you know, I'm following dad's footsteps and dad was proud, you know, that you got accepted? Is that kind of the feeling you had going through it? I think so, but my father had had, I had two brothers older than me and a sister older than me. And my oldest brother had uh, gone to Washington Lee University and then had gone into the army through ROTC. I had another brother who had gone to the prep school for West Point and then had decided when he got to West Point that this wasn't for him and so he left. And I know my father was very hesitant to encourage or push me because I think he felt as though he might have pushed my, the brother right above me too much. So when, when I was applying, my father didn't push me. In fact, I kind of expected him to put his arm around me and let's go through this process. He didn't do that. He didn't fight against it. But I think he wanted to be sure that it was something that I wanted to do. How did you take that? I think I understood at the okay. time Got it. what his motivation Got was. It. And were your older brothers the kind of brothers who were like, hey, you know, when you when are you going to be joining? When are you going to do your part? Was it that kind of a culture? Was it that kind of a family? No, it was, it was never much talked about. Um, it was just considered sort of automatic. My father was a soldier. My father's father was a soldier. My four brothers, I have five brothers, uh, we're five boys and a girl, were all soldiers at some point. My sister married a soldier. When I got married later, I married the daughter of a career soldier and her three brothers are soldiers. So it wasn't something you talked about. You just automatically, what are you gonna do in the army? What was your dad's rank, by the way? How far along did he, did he get? He became a major general. He was an infantryman who served in Korea and uh, Vietnam, earned four silver stars in those wars and then retired as a two-star general. That's pretty solid right there when you're looking at it. Now, how about his, his father, your grandfather? He was a colonel. He entered during the First World War and went up through the Second World War and retired as a colonel in the early 50s. I never knew him. He died when I was an infant, but I've still got pictures of him, and he was a very distinguished-looking guy. My father used to describe him as not very flexible. He's one of those guys that was sort of stereotypical army officer of the 1920s and 30s. Not a bad father, but not an easygoing guy. My father, on the other hand, was, if you ever saw the movie, The Great Santini, where the, 
Robert Duvall is this hard drinking, you know, braggadocious officer. My father was the other end of the spectrum. My father was incredibly quiet, incredibly self-effacing. I never saw him talk about his combat. Even in the years when I uh, had shared that experience, we didn't sit down and talk about battle X or battle mm. Y. And as I bragged to people before, I never saw either of my parents do anything wrong in my whole life. I never saw them keep extra change if somebody gave them the wrong change at a store. I never saw them take a parking spot that they shouldn't have. I never saw them cut a corner that makes quite an impression on kids because, you know, my father would never wink and a nod, we're gonna cut the line. That's just not either of my parents. Was, was it a very conservative church-going family or we, no? We were Episcopalians. My father had been raised as a Catholic and they settled on an Episcopalian, but we weren't deeply religious. It was sort of a quiet, there are things you do and there are things you don't do. So it wasn't a daily Bible study with mom and dad and Sundays, no matter what, we're going to church, no matter what happens? No. Not at all. In fact, my mother was very well read and she was very idealistic about a number of things. When my father was off in the Vietnam War, my mother was actually in opposition to it. And she, she was a, a strong believer in many liberal causes, particularly the civil rights movement. She'd come from the South. So she had this sort of fire burning inside her about social justice. My father was less obvious about that, but my mother became a local politician, a ward boss, not a, Got a candidate. But so you always knew that she had things that motivated her that were, were came from inside her in a place of deep beliefs. Was your father also liberal on the, on the policies as well? Or? He was, but you wouldn't have known it one way or another because he was a career soldier, so he never talked about it. It wasn't until my father retired that I began to really know what political beliefs he had because he just didn't think it was appropriate. So let me, let me ask you a question. You know, everybody, I grew up, my mother's side, they were all communists. My father said they were imperialists. So I became a confusist, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sitting in the middle. One is saying rich people are greedy. The other one is saying poor people are lazy. I'm confused. So who is right? You know, I would sit there and I said, listen, both of these guys make a point. So neither one of them is 100% right, but neither one of them is 100% wrong. There's some point in there that it makes sense. Which one of the, uh, I believe you're a registered Democrat. I think I saw that, that you're, you're probably more uh, on the left than you are on the right. Would that I'm be an independent, okay, but so, I, got it. I will say that uh, on many things, I, I probably side a bit more with you know, a liberal, progressive side. What would you say those would be? If you were to say two or three items, what would you sure. say those would be? Well, many of the social things. I believe in a woman's right to choose. Okay. I believe that 49,000 Americans being killed by, by guns in a year is too many. Now, I'm not a person who says we've got to do away with all guns. I got to say, we have to be sane about how we deal with firearms in America. And it should begin not from hardline positions on the left or right, but from an understanding that that's too many people dying every year. I'm pretty liberal on a lot of social issues about rights for everyone. I think everybody should have rights. I don't think it's our right to take somebody else's rights away. Um, on the other hand, I believe a lot in personal responsibility. If your room is messy and you don't pick it up, that's your responsibility mm. to do that. I think that we have individual responsibilities that go into broader community responsibilities. I think that right now, we probably don't take our broader social or community responsibilities as seriously as we should. We are our brother's keepers. If other Americans need something, that is something we need to pay attention to. You don't think we're doing that? Well, I don't think we do it as well as we could. I think that we sometimes get inside our world and it's natural and you start to protect what you have or protect those closest to you. But if you think about what a nation is, 
It's a covenant between people who become citizens. And really what's implied there is we each get some rights. We get the right to be protected with legal rights. We have some responsibilities that go with that, like voting and paying taxes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think our responsibilities go a bit wider. I think our responsibilities actually go, they're implied to everybody. If I need something, then I think society needs to consider if it's a real need, we have a responsibility to take care of each other. That's a good point. I think the challenge is how do you differentiate between the key word uh, uh, was a real need? How do we differentiate between a real need? Because I lived in a city where I saw a lot of social workers were being paid money on the side to be able to get you on social security without you doing And I saw a lot of people doing that. And so I was saying, I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, what is going on here? These people don't need it. They can work in their 40s, but why are they going on Social Security and all this other taxpayers are paying for it? Those dynamics kind of got me to say, how do we figure out what is a real need? How do we do that? It's incredibly hard. So there's no simple solution. I would say that if someone has the ability to perform in society, they have the responsibility to do that and they ought to be held account to that. On the other hand, there are a lot of people in society who don't have that ability. And young children often pay the bills for parents or or anyone who brings them in the world and won't do that part or can't do that part. I mean, this is, it can be a pretty tough world if you don't get some lucky breaks as you go along. So I think we have a responsibility to look at that. There's gonna be abuses, there always will be. Any system you create, there are abuses. There were also abuses in the financial system in which people with huge amounts of money took huge liberties. Absolutely. And corrupted the system. Yep. So it happens all along the spectrum. That doesn't mean we should step away from the requirement to take care of each other. It means that we've got to be realistic about human nature. We've got to spend the time and effort to put systems in. And we, we can't get frustrated when things aren't perfect. I don't think they will be. I don't think people are perfect, but I think that's no reason to suddenly write off, you know, the other part or any parts of our society. I agree with you there. So I was, my parents were divorced. Growing up, I uh, had a one-point AGP in high school, and I looked at a lot of my friends, and I said, you know, what's going to go, what's going to happen here with me? And a lot of my uh, friends would say, be careful with Patrick, because Patrick's probably going to go into drugs. He could be a statistic. He could be this. And by the way, they had a valid point, because I was, you know, headed in that direction. One day, you know, recruiter Jesus Guerra kept following up with me, and uh, one night I drank a little too much. My sister almost got evicted. They had all these people were putting a party at the apartment complex. I woke up in the morning. They stole my 1983 Toyota Corolla. <laughs> we found it six months later when I was in boot camp. We found it in Tijuana out of all the places. <laughs> well, I finally found this 83 Corolla that was probably worth like $800. But then that day I said, I'm going to join the Army. So I made that decision and went in the Army. And then from that route, I got out, went and became an entrepreneur. I think sometimes when you, I think the battle becomes... So, you know, capitalism works because the individual must get some credit, but the collective wouldn't happen without the collective, right? And this is the battle we have. This is why we have a left and a right. So, you know, you being independent, I'm a registered independent myself. So it's interesting when you're saying that. Going back to the guns, for, for a person that's a four-star general, you're not saying let's ban guns. You're not saying let's ban semi-automatic automatic weapons. You're not saying that, right? No, I'm not, because I don't know, statistically you'll find that semi-automatic weapons aren't the cause of most deaths in America. I like the idea that people say that there are some people who should never have any guns and that there are some guns that nobody should ever have on the spectrum. I think if we really want to protect the Second Amendment, we better protect it from its, its excesses. You know, when they 
did the Second Amendment, if you study it, to you know, allow for a, uh, a well-regulated militia. We also had a period when you had very crude musket, typically smoothbore weapons. And so you didn't have the ability to do mass. And the idea was not that everybody would be able to shoot their neighbor. It was to prevent a government becoming too strong and therefore being able to press the states and oppress local areas because the militias would be strong enough to mm -hmm, counterbalance. Mm -hmm. Technology has gone a long way since then. And so right now, a single individual can be very, very dangerous to everyone else and a lot of people who don't deserve it. And so I think society has the responsibility to look at firearms in society and protect all of us as a group. If we protect everybody's right to have a tank or a thermonuclear weapon, pretty soon that small percentage who don't have control, who use them are gonna create you know, unrecoverable damage. So I think we need to avoid the excesses that some people see in the Second Amendment. You know, hunting's fine, target marksmanship fine. Even the defense of your family and your home, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's part but of your sound like you have any concerns. Are you saying maybe a little bit deeper of a background check would be, is that kind of, is, is it more technical, like maybe you buy a gun, you don't get it for 48 hours? Is that kind of where you're? It's, it's that kind of thing. Okay, I also think that registration of guns is not a bad thing. I think if you are a responsible enough person to own a gun, having it registered shouldn't be a problem. I know there's always the concern that the government's gonna come take them away, but the reality is that the government wanted to take weapons away. The government has so much power, talking about just physical power, they could do that. So I don't think that we should be opposed to controlling weapons in a careful way. We control a lot of things. We control many drugs, we control mm -hmm. types of food. Mm -hmm. We control things, and so we ought to look at anything that's got this kind of power ought to have maturity built into it. Why do you think there's a challenge with wanting to, uh, you know, impose uh, deeper background checks or, you know, 48 hours of getting your gun versus just getting it right off the bat? In Texas, I can go buy a gun and walk out and I have something, you know, I'm living in Texas. But I also lived in LA and LA had to wait yeah. some time to get it. Why do you think there's a pushback with that? Do you think it's really the fact that government's gonna have too much control over the people that believe in pro-gun, the NRA, those folks? I think it is the fact that the argument or the discussion on guns has become an argument to either end. And there's a perception by some people that any move towards more regulation equals a move towards total ban on firearms. I don't really think that that's the intent of the vast majority of any kind of majority of Americans. We sometimes characterize it that way, and it stops us from doing common sense measures that need to be done. Fair enough. Why don't we talk leadership since you have so much experience with that? I mean, that's something uh, where uh, uh, I believe I was earlier tweeted a couple of days ago. I said, if there's two skill set that'll help you advance in life, one is learning how to sell, because uh, everybody that becomes a president, they know how to sell. You know, President Trump knows how to sell, President Obama knows how to sell, Bush knows how to sell, and President Clinton know how to sell. But the other one is leadership. I think leadership's the one that will help you go way farther in life than anything else will be. I'd want to go a couple things. One, obviously you had your career, but prior to going to that, I'd want to talk to you about how it was having a father who was a two-star general. What were some of the leadership things you took away from him? I mean, when you're saying you never saw your dad wink and we're going to go, you know, the car or change or money or any of that stuff, that's, that's an incredible example of parents you had. I mean, that's unbelievable to have something like that. But were there any conversations or things you saw when your dad was making certain decisions saying, those qualities are going to help me advance as a leader in life? It's interesting. Uh, when I was young, I saw my father treat people, how he interacted with everyone. And he was always courteous and he was always thoughtful. 
He was never bombastic. I never saw my father give an order. I mean, maybe me and my brothers were told to do or stop doing certain things sometimes, but it wasn't the way he led. He was almost gentle. And yet in combat, I'm told that he was not. He was almost gentle in how he dealt with everyone, very respectful. And at the end of the day, I think what he taught me is people follow you because they believe in you. They believe that you're gonna lead them somewhere they need to go. You may be able to direct them for very short periods, but if you direct someone, they'll typically go as far as you can see and then they'll stop because they're not, they're not tied to you. And so what he taught me was leadership is actually that. The, it begins with the leader, but the leader has to create a relationship with the followers that is respectful, that is genuine, that is empathetic on both sides so the leader can understand what the followers' perceptions can be and what their position is. And I think vice versa, you gotta be human enough with the people you interact with for them to understand you. If you're standing too high on the pedestal and you are a godlike figure, there may be a sort of fascination and reverence for you, but I don't think it's the same as the deep bonds of leadership where people will do anything for you, give you the last drop out of the canteen or, or risk their lives. So who were some of the military leaders you admired? You read a lot. So was there anyone that you said, you know, if there's somebody, I mean, outside of your father, yeah. if there's somebody you read upon that you said, I'd want one to be recognized and take this style of leadership. Were there any names? Yeah, there, there's one that I, lower level, I've saved lower level, he's a Brigadier General in the Civil War, a guy named John Buford. He was Southern by birth, but he stayed in the United States Army. He had gone to West Point, he had served before the Civil War. And then he became a Cavalry Division Commander. His force would often range out in front of the Army of the Potomac or on the flanks and do independent action. And in the Battle of Gettysburg, he goes in front of the Army, he picks ground that is different than the Army had planned to fight on. He decides that this is the best place for the Army of the Potomac to take on Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And he makes a decision. He's a 37-year-old officer, and he makes a decision to commit the 90,000-man Army of the Potomac to battle. He didn't have the authority to do that, but he did it because he had a great relationship with his superiors in the force. He thought he was doing the right thing. They had enough trust in him to then bring the army forward just on his word. And everybody on both sides knew that the Battle of Gettysburg had every likelihood of deciding the outcome of the Civil War. And so think about it. If you're 37 and you commit the army and maybe the nation. 90,000. That's right, to the, to the critical moment of this four and a half year war. And he did it. And then six months later, he died. And there's some said he died of a form of influenza. Some said he died literally of exhaustion because he had served so hard and so courageously. And then he died in the fall of 1863 and he was deeply mourned. What do you, what do you admire about him? What do you admire about that decision? Is it the fact that he was alone when we made a decision and maybe the people disagreed with him? What, what part of it I, was it? I think that he had the courage to make a decision which might've been wrong. He had the courage to communicate his decisions to his bosses, but he had to make it independently. And he was willing to accept responsibility for it. The first thing is he committed himself and his cavalry division to an uneven battle against approaching Confederates, so they could have been wiped out and killed. So for the first morning of the battle, what he does is he has this very uneven defense where he's holding on by you know his fingernails, he and his cavalry division. Then when the army comes up, they commit to what he had said. So. The willingness to commit his reputation, his personal safety and everything to that kind of decision for the nation, 
I think was really admirable. I think it's hard for us to sometimes admire when leaders make a decision that we don't support because it could go either way, because that story could have gone the complete opposite way, right? And That's then, right. You know, John Buford's a whole different story. We're leading a failure in leadership, failure in decision. How do you think we as citizens ought to look at that if one of our leaders, let's just say, didn't make the right decision? How do we handle that? Yeah, it's a it's a fair case. I think that the thing about failure in decision making is if it's done from the right intentions, if it's done with a responsible mindset, if you decide to take the left fork instead of the right fork, but you tried to do the right thing, I think we ought to celebrate it. I think we ought to say, okay. Fair enough, yeah. Because if they get the right one, that might have been dumb luck. You know, they might have flipped a coin and they dumb luck and we tell them they're, they're a great leader and a hero. But people have got to make decisions. One of the things I found in organizations and in the government is there was a tendency to be, do what I call decision avoidance. And somebody would come to you, Pat, and they'd say, we want to do this. And what you might do if you wanted to avoid a decision, you'd say, bring me more information. And in the time it took them to bring you more information, the opportunity came and went, or the risk was there. And then you didn't approve it, and you didn't disapprove it. What you did is you made no decision. And so you couldn't be held responsible. And I see that in organizations sometimes where we put leaders in places and they, they practice that kind of avoiding decisions and it's not what we hire leaders for. Is there any examples of that? I used to see it in the Pentagon all the time. Uh, bureaucrats in government are often not rewarded for decisions, and so they, they try to avoid making them as often as they can. We had a time we were going after a... That's so interesting you say that they are not rewarded for making decisions. So I'm better off not making it because if I make the wrong one, it could hurt my legacy or my career. Exactly. And they're not held to account for avoidance. We were trying to do an operation across a border into uh, go after an Al-Qaeda in Iraq leader. Mm -hmm. And the way we got around that was we got the people who were going to do the op, just two operators from Delta Force. Mm -hmm. Then we had the Cheney Command all on this conference call. And at the top was President Barack Obama. We started with a commander who's going to lead this. We say, we want to get approval for this. We want it to go forward. And he gives this briefing, and then somebody asks a question. It was one of those questions, sort of decision avoidance. Mm -hmm. Well, what if this, this? And he said, well, let me ask him. And he went down to the two operators who are gonna do the operation. Jim, Bob, what are you guys gonna do in that case? And they answered the question. President Obama then comes on the line and says, okay. Has anybody got any more questions? And basically saying, everybody, if you don't have a real valid question, shut up. And in a moment, about 30 minutes, we got approval for an operation that would have taken three months in the norm of bureaucratic system. And it was brilliant. Now you can't do that for yeah. every. Do you think a, a part of the story, I had Chris Peranto on one time. Chris Peranto was the, from the movie 13 Hours. I don't know if you remember the movie 13 Hours. Sure. What do you think, was there any part of indecision in that situation that we had? I think there, there's no doubt some. Okay. But the reality is I think that that Benghazi has become so politicized that it's hard for people to talk about it real. In reality, when I think of Benghazi, I think of Ambassador Chris Stevens, a brave U.S. diplomat. He goes to a place, Benghazi, which is less secure than other places in Libya, and he chooses to because he thinks that's where he can execute some of the business he needs to do. It takes a lot of courage to do what he did, by that's the way, right. to be where he's at. There wasn't enough security, and some of the Libyan security melted away, and so a very difficult situation happened, and Chris Stevens is killed. Now, there are two ways we could have looked at this. Mm -hmm. One was to start a lot of investigation, pointing fingers and this and this, which is unfortunate what we did. The other is we could have said, here's a brave ambassador 
who went in harm's way to do the nation's bidding, he was killed. We had to honor him, we had to build a statue to him, we had to hope that we have a thousand more ambassadors like him. Because if we don't want our ambassadors to be in any risk, we had to put them all in Ohio. They just won't be very effective in dealing with right. the countries. So we've got, we've got to understand that there's risk in doing things. And what we should do is celebrate the people who understand the mission is worthy of the risk. That's interesting. It took the, it took the attention away from him being a hero into it being uh, politicized. And unfortunately, that happens way too often on both sides, by the way. You see it all the time, and I, I don't know necessarily how that's avoidable, because typically both sides do, because there's probably some kind of an election going on. Yeah. Let's go, let's go back to some of the experiences you had as a leader yourself. So West Point, since three years old, I'm gonna be a soldier when I grow up. You get accepted, you got the news, it's awesome. You're going through it, you're an officer. So from that moment, was it something like, I can't wait for my first deployment? Is, is, is that kind of what you have? Because, you know, obviously, I have to get experience to see what my dad went through, my brothers are going yeah. through. How soon afterwards did you get some experience? Well, it took a long time, but I'm gonna back you up just a little bit, Pat, because I went to West Point to be my father. He was a combat veteran, he was an officer. You went to West Point to be your father. And so I didn't go to West Point to be a West Point cadet. And that's an interesting thing because when I went to West Point, I arrived at age 17 and West Point was 170 years old when I arrived. And they took the place very seriously and I didn't. And so I got there thinking I was gonna sort of cruise in, high five for four years and move on. I ran into some issues. I had problems with grades. I didn't do well in math. I didn't study as like I should have. I had significant conduct or discipline problems. Really? Yeah. Well, my, can you elaborate? Oh you? yeah. <laughs> the first summer I got there, I, uh, in Beast Barracks, a friend of mine and I got what we call slugged, a big punishment for disapprobation towards a cadet superior. And I didn't even know what disapprobation was. It's <laughs> disrespect. Some guy came up and we were doing something he didn't like and he yelled at us and then he walked away. And he walked away and we thought, we looked at each other and we sort of gave him the, you know, and we laughed. He had circled around through this bathroom and caught us doing that. So boom, I'm slammed with my first slug. And then I got three more slugs in my first year and a half there. So I became what they call a century man. I walked more than a hundred hours on the area in the first. Let me ask you, at this time, do they know who your father is or no? Like, because if they know who your father is, they're gonna give you a harder time, you know, a tougher time than somebody else. I think people knew, I didn't think they okay, cared. Okay, got it. You know, I, I, I think they were happy to give me a hard time or not. No matter what. I got brought it. that on myself. Got it. I was the hard head who, uh, who made it really tough. So my first two years at West Point, I came very close to flunking out academically. I came within a few demerits of being thrown out for conduct. Robert E. Lee went four years to West Point and never got a single demerit. I became within just a handful of demerits of getting thrown out, which is a lot more than that. Then a couple things happened. I met my now wife of almost 42 years when I was a sophomore and suddenly there was kind of a different focus on my life and that was good. <laughs> Normally happens. And then at the beginning of my junior year, I had a new tactical officer come in to take our company and a guy named Dave Barato and he came out of Special Forces and he sat down at the beginning of the year for uh, a counseling session with each cadet mm -hmm. individually. And I remember sitting down, expected to be told, you know, how bad I was. And he goes, I think you got amazing potential. You're gonna be a great cadet and a great army officer. And I remember looking over and said, are you looking at my file? You know who I, I am? And, and he goes, yeah, I know you are. Let me tell you what I think you're good at. And let me tell you where you've stumbled. And it was amazing. I remember walking out of there thinking, wow, here's somebody who is 
And I'd never been treated badly before, but here's a guy who just said, all that stuff's kind of irrelevant because you got things that are gonna make you great. Was that the first experience of a non-family member uh, doing that to you in the military? Yeah, Okay, it that's was. why you remembered. And I'm still friends with him for the, wow. to this day. And he was just that kind of motivational leader mm -hmm. and a lot of experience that I hope to get. So I then graduate after four years. I go into the Army, the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, and I was excited about that. But it was the 1970s Army, and the 1970s Army was struggling. It was post-Vietnam, we had drug problems, we, we didn't have a lot of money. Leadership was pretty uneven. It wasn't the 82nd Airborne of the movies that I had seen and that I wanted to be. So when you went 82nd, you're second lieutenant. I was brand new second okay. lieutenant. I joined the 82nd and it was a great experience, but it was certainly not as good. The troops weren't as polished art as I thought they'd be, but it was good leadership uh, training. I started to learn that's a real thing about the Army. Every soldier, if you think of soldiers, everybody dresses the same. Everybody sort of has the, the weaknesses hidden behind a uniform and a rank and whatnot. You look at Tory soldiers, they're all perfect. Well, that's not real soldiers, as you know, Pat. Real mm -hmm. soldiers are mm -hmm. a bunch of individuals, each with a life, a history, a background, problems. And so when you get into the Army and you suddenly, my first platoon of paratroopers, you know, I joke with them, they were a bunch of yahoos. There was heavy drinking, there was heavy foolishness. When they ran out of beer money at the end of the year, or at the end of the month, they had this electrical cord, they'd plug in a socket and it was stripped down and they could literally send electrical current through the group of them and they'd get in a circle and they closed the thing. And I mean, it's funny, but they were, a lot of them from tough backgrounds and they would do anything for you if they trusted you. Mm. And so the reality is it reminds you, you don't have to go to college. You didn't have to have the opportunities I'd had to be a really good paratrooper. The difference is what you did or didn't do on a daily basis. And you got that choice every instant to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And so you watch that and you start to, to get away from the idea that the leader is the leader because of their family background, their social caste, their education, or anything else. The leader is the leader because they decide to be, mm. because they accept the responsibility means that the leader, when it's difficult, has got to stand a little taller. The leader may have to carry a little more load than is theirs necessarily. The leader's got to accept danger. The leader's got to do things that aren't convenient. I remember one of the first things the second lieutenant does in a good light infantry unit is learn that during the field, they have to inspect their soldiers' feet. And I'm talking, you take the boots off, you take the socks off, Why? you get up close. Because the soldiers' feet are the health of a light infantry unit. If their feet are wet, blistered, or any problems, they're not gonna get from A to B. And yet, it's not something you direct down. The lieutenant checks the feet and get right up close and personal with the nasty feet of a bunch of 20, 20 year olds. That's not beneath you, that is what you're supposed to do. That is the kind of responsibility. Those are biblical principles, right? That's there are right. A lot of them. There are a lot of biblical principles. Yeah. Let me ask you, for someone, there's no way you became a four-star general without being tested a few times, right? What were some of the times? I mean, there's only 14 of you. I mean, yeah. we have to, there's 330 million people live in America, 14 four-stars. It's, it's, it's even a bigger deal than being a billionaire because the percentage are working so against you. Yeah. But what were some times when you were going where you're sitting there and you have to make a tough decision, you don't have time to call 
a friend or somebody to consult, and you have to make that decision. What were those moments for you? Yeah, I'll go through a couple. One, I was a lieutenant in that same battalion in the 82nd. And we were going out to do a mortar live fire, and I was a very exacting officer, so I said, when we go out to do a mortar live fire, we will dig pits. The mortars go in, which is what you do in combat, which is a lot of work. They're big round holes. So before you do it, everybody's got to get there, and this small platoon's got to dig for three or four hours straight to get down, and then before we can fire the mortars. So we go out to this place and I say, okay, we're gonna dig the mortars in. And they were used to me at that point. And they said, okay. And then we go to open the range with range control and range control says, no, you don't have that firing point. And I said, whoa, what do you mean? So we got in the vehicle, my platoon sergeant and I was just a little older than me and we drove to range control. We said, we do. And he says, no, you don't. He showed the paperwork. I had filled the paperwork out wrong. We were supposed to be at a different firing point. And I said, well, hey, help me out here. I've already had my guys dig in, just change paperwork and we'll be good. And they said, no, you're gonna go to the one you've got. So I went back, my platoon sergeant and I, first thing I had to do was take the mortars out of the thing and then fill in the holes, which took about an hour, put everything in the vehicles, move over to the correct point, you know, maybe half a mile away. And when we got to the new point, it's now well after midnight, it's cold, it's wet, what are we gonna do? And I remember sitting there thinking, I screwed up, they've already dug in once, they've gotten the training. I had always said that when we shoot mortars, we're gonna do it right, we're gonna dig in. So I remember saying, okay, we're gonna dig in. And they're thinking, holy smoke, this idiot screwed it up, now we're gonna pay the price. The only thing I could do was dig with them, which is what I did. But I think that, you know, I was glad I did it, because after, at first, it was not a happy place at first. But then after they started doing it, they. I think they grudgingly accepted how difficult that decision was for me to make. I'm the only officer, I'm sort of ostracized. And they, with a good humor, they said, okay, you know, we don't hate you for being stupid, you know. And we dug in and... Um, this is at Fort Bragg. Are you a Fort first Bragg. or second at that time? I'm a second lieutenant. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I don't have any stature. <laughs> and then later, a few years later, I was a captain and I, um, I came out of Korea. I wanted to go to an infantry company and command a company. I arrived to the post and I was told, no, you're not going to add to a company. You're gonna to go to division staff and work this horrible job where most of the people up there had been fired, it's my, was my impression. And I was just desperate not to get stuck in there and wanted to go. So I spent about 10 days while they, they argued over where I was gonna be assigned. And then finally, at the end of the argument, I was told, okay, you're going to what they call Department of Plans and Training, which I didn't want to go be a staff officer. The guy who ran it, this lieutenant colonel, had heard that I didn't want to be there, so he already is sort of spring-loaded to be angry with me and not like me, and I don't blame him. He didn't want to be there either. He wanted to be down mm -hmm. in the battalion. Mm -hmm. It's about late in the afternoon and they, all this argument, I go in to report to him, and I report in and said, okay, uh, sir, you know, Captain McChrystal reporting. And he looked at me and he says, you know, I heard you don't want to be here. And in a split second, I said something which for the rest of my life I've been happy about. I said, sir, that's right. I would love to be out in a rifle company, but I'm here. And while I'm here, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can with as good an attitude as I can possess for you. That's what I'm going to do. And I believe that if I do a good job, that over time, you'll take care of me and help me get to a company at some point. And it was amazing to see the countenance. And you told him that. I told him that face to face. I screwed up the courage and said it. And this Lieutenant Colonel's countenance changed and it was amazing. He goes, you you're mean right. respect. Yeah, he says, you're right. Most of us don't want to be here. And I certainly appreciate that that's the attitude you bring in here. And he was better than his word. 
He took care of me. Wow. I was there about seven months, and then he architected me to get down to Commander Rifle Company. And he was a wonderful boss while I was there. But it was one of those moments where I, I could have pouted and felt like I was getting screwed because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. other captains weren't having sure. to do this. But what was the point? Instead, I was lucky enough to, in that moment, remember how he felt being there because he desperately didn't want to be there either. So, and I learned a lot of leadership from him as well. So it's those moments. I got as many wrong as I got right. I mean, that one worked. You know, it's, thanks for sharing that. It's amazing when I was in, I just, I can't hear enough of these stories. There's so many lessons in these stories, truly. So many lessons because, you know, there's one thing in the world of business. If you get something wrong, you're put out of business. You know, if you get something wrong in the world of uh, military and you're in war and line of fire, you're caught, your life is done. And not only your life being done, you could have all these soldiers that are reporting to their lives being in your hands. So you know, let's talk about your book. I know you've written a few books. The other book I saw, The Team of Teams, I like how you put it, how the top down is a typical way, then the other way is the groups. And then now it's, it's uh, uh, reporting, it's almost like a flat system where you see a lot of Silicon Valley companies using that. I thought that was uh, fascinating, by the way, and I think uh, people in business need to read the team of teams. But your recent book, Leaders, let's talk about that. Sure. Uh, you know, what can I take away from reading the book and what inspired you want to write that book? I, I've written three books. My first was my memoirs, and that's sort of your life story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second team of teams was a study in organizational leadership that's been amazingly uh, successful because part of it's our story of transforming a military force, Joint Special Operations Command, in combat. We changed how we operated, changed our culture, Hugely. And that's not common in the military world, no. what you did, because that, that's not, that's very unorthodox. I'd never seen it before, but I was a part of this amazing group of SEALs, Delta Force, mm. uh, Rangers, uh, aviators of just stunning quality, elite. And we'd been the best in the world at what we did. And suddenly in Iraq, starting about 2003, we found out that as good as we were, we were wrong for that task. We were wrong for that challenge because the enemy had changed. Information technology, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, became a completely different kind of foe and they were beating us. And so our first response was, you know, how can this happen because we're Super Bowl victors? We got to do this. And then we realized that what we really had to do is look inside and become basketball players, which is hard to do to people who are proud and, and set. On that experience, when I left the service, we started studying whether that was unique to the military or special ops or to even a warfare. And what we found it's not, it's a facing all organizations today, it's complexity and speed. And so Team of Teams connects those two. It examines what happened to us and what happens in other business places. And I've had more companies come to me and say, we run our business according to your book now. And you know what's amazing? It's easier to do in the world of business than military. And the fact that you're in the military, to me, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. It was, uh, yeah, it's much harder in the military. Because it's order, rank, who are you talking to, like that drop, you better listen or else threat. It's, it's a, so. And many things are done by law. And so there's all kinds of bumpers yeah. that stop you. Even the assignment system where you put people through assignments quickly, it stops someone from being, I went to command JSOC for two years and stayed five, mm. but that never happens. I was just this aberration during wartime where they let me stay to allow it to occur. But we finished Team of Teams and I was 63 years old and I came to the conclusion that as, as sad as this sounds after being taught leadership so many years and getting a chance to do it and write about it, I wasn't quite sure what leadership really is. We started studying it. We went back to Plutarch, the first century Greek 
mm-hmm. a historian who wrote the first biographies, and he paired Greek and Roman leaders together. And for a century and a half, everybody read Plutarch. Theodore Roosevelt carried it in his breast pocket, said he read it a thousand times, and it's forever fresh. Alexander Hamilton took notes about Plutarch at night when he was a young officer at Valley Forge, when he had a lot of other stuff going on. So this was seminal. If we were 75 years ago, Pat, you and I would both have read it. We'd have it on our bookshelves. But nowadays, it's, it's sort of out of fashion. We came to the conclusion that leadership isn't what we think it is. And as we studied, we found out it never has been. So what we did was we decided to use Plutarch's model of pairing leaders, and we selected First, we selected 12 leaders in pairs. We selected founders, Walt Disney and Coco Chanel. We selected reformers, Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, Reformation and Dr. Martin Luther King. We selected heroes, Chinese admiral from the 15th century, Zhong Ha and Harriet Tubman. We selected power brokers, Boss Tweed of New York City, and then Margaret Thatcher. So we selected this eclectic group to include zealots, Maximilian Robespierre of the French Revolution and Abu Musab al-Zarqai, who I fought for two and a half years. And we, we took these 12 profiles. You put the guy you fought on that list. And That's we killed so him. interesting. That's right, because I respected him. At the end of the day, what we found was every one of these leaders was completely different, and yet there are things about leadership that we derive. So for example, we learned that most people might say, well, we're gonna take these leaders, we're gonna put them and find the similarities, bring it down to the top two or three things and write a book that says, the three leadership behaviors you need and go forth mm-hmm. and make a lot of money and be successful. What we found is leadership's extraordinarily contextual. It's different in every situation, every moment, the followers, leaders, the situation that you're in. Because of that, it's impossible to replicate in a generic sense. There's no such thing in our view as a generic good leader. And we came up with, we identified these myths that have always colored how we think about leadership. One of them is the formulaic myth. That's the idea that if I have certain behavioral or attributes, if I'm thrifty, brave, clean, reverent, I'm gonna be successful. And yet when we studied history, what we find is people who have the majority of those often fail. And people who got almost none of them Often wing. Is it because they wing it because they've been getting away without having to use a lot of it and so uh, they can pretty much beat the regular guys so like this and I never have to get too disciplined and put too much effort into it? The answer would be sometimes. The answer is almost always it depends. The answer wow. is because the situation is always so different, the really great leader is the person who can come into a situation, mm-hmm. empathize with the people they're working with, their followers, although follower may not be the right word, it may be partner or participant, but we, we all use follower, to understand what their needs are, what their perspectives are, also understand the situation. If you take someone like Vince Lombardi, he had a coaching style when he was coaching high school, he had a different style when he coached college. He had a different style yet when he was coaching the Green Bay Packers mm-hmm. and Paul Horning would drink a case of beer the night before a game. Mm-hmm. That's a different guy than a cadet at West Point. And his quarterback told him, he said, every time you call me out like this in front of my peers, I lose credibility. That's and right. he adjusted, and he adjusted. That's right. Yeah. And, and so we think of him as this one kind of person. Actually, he was a very adaptable leader. Now, he's a hard guy, but... And so what we found is this, this idea that there's a formula for good leadership isn't true. And then we have another myth that we came up with, we realized, it's the attribution, it's the idea that if the organization wins or loses, it's the leadership fault or his credit. So you don't believe everything rises and falls on leadership? No, I, I used to. 
Um, in fact, I might say it rises and falls on leadership, but not on the leader. Because I don't think leadership is something that you or I have and we pull it out of our pocket and we throw it. I think leadership is a product of interaction between the leader and followers in the situation. It's like an emergent property. It's like you mix certain chemicals together and if you get the right ones together, you get a certain mm -hmm. outcome. That's leadership. Did, did you come up with things where certain principles are evergreen that are always gonna apply for 100 years from now, 50 years from now, and other industries as well, or also goes back to, it depends? Yeah, it depends. So everything is it depends? It depends. Now there are things we want. We want values from leaders, but in reality, they're not de leadership's not dependent upon that. Look at how many people of really negative values are very effective leaders. Grant is one of them. I mean, Alexander did some stuff. I mean, the uh, list is a long list. Almost every leader does has yeah. a dark side, and then there's some people who are almost all dark side, and yet they're still effective leaders. Think of Adolf Hitler. Leadership is effective or it isn't. It's not good or bad mm. in terms of value decision. And so as we study these leaders, we came out with this humility that leadership's far more complex than most of us realize. And there's no such thing as the great man or the great woman who stands on the pedestal and is the fulcrum of history. In fact, those people who we put on the pedestal, historically, the closer you look, yeah, they fall. Yeah. And so the 13th profile, we added Robert E. Lee. And we added Robert E. Lee because he had been the leader most central in my life. You, you mentioned him earlier when you said when he went to the West Point, flawless, yeah. no issues, nothing. Exactly. I have a Robert E. Lee statue in my house right next to Grant. Yeah, yeah. as you should. Yeah. It's a great guy, but he wasn't a perfect guy. Yeah. He made some fundamental mistakes, bad decisions that can't be forgiven or overlooked. But it doesn't mean that we say that they're of no value that they weren't, that they were bad people. What we say is they're human, just like us. So you would categorize Hitler also as a human? Um, yeah, he probably tests the case more than anyone else, but yeah, he had a value set and a set of perspectives that I think were skewed, but he probably could have passed a lie detector test of was he doing the best thing for the German people. I agree with you on that. Did you, have, did you read a lot of his material? Like, did you ever read Mein Kampf? I did, I You did. went through that. Yeah, I mean, when you're younger, you want to read the things that people right. wrote. It's amazing how he would go to the local political debates just to watch and see the debates and say, one day I can do this better, and I don't know why they're not making decisions, and I can... Like, he was a true believer. I don't know if you read that book by Bonhoeffer. He, he, he is a... He would, like you said, if he did a lie detector test, he would have thought, I did everything right. The one on the rise of Hitler, the recent book um, on the rise of Hitler, describes him as a tuning fork. And he could get the pitch of what people wanted, needed, and he could meet that in just the right tone. And of course, it's hard to argue that that wasn't the case. By the way, again, fascinating stuff. We can talk about this stuff all day long. You know, final thoughts with you. I know you also have a, a soft heart in, in, in things you want to do with contribution with the youth and, and some projects you're working on. Why don't you yeah. tell us a little, bit, a little bit about that? Well, thanks, Pat, because I feel very strongly about it. I think if we go back to the idea of America as a nation, mm -hmm. You know, someone says, well, God created America. No, 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 no. People came to the United States and America was built, the United States of America was built over time as an agreement between people. And that agreement between people with rights and responsibilities is pretty sacred. And if we don't uphold it, we're not gonna have the kind of society we need. And at the, the foundation of that is citizens. It's the people who have those rights and responsibilities. You know, most of us, in the U.S. didn't do anything to earn our citizenship. We're born and we got it. Other people have to do an awful lot more to get it. In many cases, they, 
they hold that a little more dear because they understand it was something that, that was hard earned. Ours was earned by people before us. Mm -hmm. But where do people learn the, the citizenship that really shapes you in life? You went into the army, and I'm gonna take a wild guess that you came out better than you went in. Absolutely. You didn't love every day, you didn't value everything you did. Many of the things that made me better than I otherwise would be, I didn't enjoy in the moment. I think people have to have experiences where they contribute to something big. How do you do that though? How do you, how do you get somebody who's never been there to be able to relate to somebody else's situation? Well, I think you gotta put them together and you gotta put them in that. I don't think you can do it in civics class or with a well-written article. People who go in the military get that experience. Not only do they get something doing they didn't wanna do necessarily, but they do it with people not from their zip code. Like my first paratroop platoon and people you served with, you suddenly have a different connection with people because they're not them anymore. They're not those people. They're, guess what, they're up close and you know they're a lot more like us than they are different from us. And we have this shared experience. But only 30% of young Americans qualify to enlist in the military. 70% don't qualify for physical reasons, academic reasons, legal reasons. And so 70% of Americans right now don't get that kind of opportunity to learn from the experience. So I think what we need is a program that allows every young American to have a realistic opportunity to do a year of national service, conservation, healthcare, education, something they do like AmeriCorps, Peace Mandatory Corps. Mandatory or is this, is this choice? <laughs> Partly, I tell people that my fantasy in the dark is mandatory. <laughs> but in reality, what I advocate is voluntary but culturally expected. And what I mean that is people do it and then suddenly you meet somebody completely different from you and you start the conversation with, where'd you serve? Well, I taught in schools in Louisiana. I did this. I, I worked on trails and something. You each did something for this common thing we own together, the United States. You know, people who do service, they vote at three times the rate of people who don't do service later in life. Mm. They volunteer at higher rates. They have a higher investment in society and it reflects in what kind of citizens they become. It allows everybody to be more proud of themselves. Think of this, these two things. Suppose you get to the airline and you wait for your flight and they say, all military, active duty military, you get to go on first. What if they said all young people doing their year of national service, you go on first with the military because they're both, it's two sides of the same coin. There's a lot of young people, you know, every once in a while I'm on a flight and we applaud the military and they mm -hmm. get on. There are a lot of people who are never gonna get applauded in their lifetime and then suddenly they're doing something and they're gonna have those moments. How do you feel about society? I then? think people would be very open to it. I don't think, I don't think there'd be a pushback on that. Matter of fact, I mean, you look at a lot of different denominations. Yeah. LDS does that all the time. So they come back connecting to a community. I was in Costa Rica. I understand them better. I went to Mexico. I understand them better. I think, I, I think that's a very uh, easy to be accepted idea. I don't see that because for us, one of the things we did in our office every year, Christmas morning, another man named June, he would always, uh, uh, he had an experience with his daughter and he started doing things on Christmas day Christmas morning on Skid Row. So I was 23, 24 years old. I said, do you mind if I join you? He says, sure. I said, I'd love to go with you. So we started going and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we would take a hundred people with us and we'd go to Skid Row. And we just talked about it the other day, by the way. We'd go to Skid Row and we would bring, you know, 200 McMuffins. We would bring blankets, toothpaste, toothbrush, clothes. And what I started noticing happen, that group that participate in that, most of them are still around till today. It's so weird, you know, when you say this. Most of them are still around today. 
because you started Christmas morning, December 25th, after opening up gifts, most people open up. We're 5 o'clock, we're in downtown LA. And we did that for seven, eight, nine years uh, consecutively. So I don't think people would be against that. Matter of fact, I think there'd be more people being receptive to that because what parent doesn't want to see their kids experience service? You know, especially those that you're saying, I mean, you're talking legal, illegal uh, uh, immigrants. You're, you're talking people that are here legally to be able to participate in something yeah. like this. It's profound. Yeah. I think it's profound. Is there a name behind it? Is there it's a website? It's the Service Year Alliance. Is there a website? There is. Service Year Alliance, one word. Service Year Alliance. Alliance.com. Dot com. And I'll tell you what, it's really powerful. What we need is some political leadership to help it along. John McCain was our biggest supporter. We have others on the Hill, but we need, you know, critical mass of political leadership along with corporate leadership and just leaders at every level doing this because it's not political. It's not left or right. If there's, not, if, if there's no political agenda behind it, you'll get support. Exactly. If there's the political agenda behind it, you know, yeah. people are going to turn against it. If we have more and more independent stuff, Democrats need Republicans more than they think they need and Republicans need Democrats more than they think they need. And generally, the eagle flies fast when he's leveled. And that's right in the middle. If we can kind of listen to one another every once in a while and go into boardrooms. And by the way, what did you think about that day when uh, President Trump sat with Nancy Pelosi and sat with Chuck Schumer and Mike Pence was sitting to the right of President Trump? Do you like that? Do you like to see more things like that? I like to see it every day. Think of Tip O'Neill and President Reagan. You know, they were different spectrum, but they were talking. They were buddies, though. They would have beer. Yeah. Have you read the book uh, uh, Chris Matthews wrote about Tip O'Neill? I did. Did you ever read that book? I did. I couldn't put it down. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't put it down. The stories on how they were, they would have their fights, their battles, but at the end of the day, they had so much respect for each other, and they got things done. It'd be great to see that happen. I don't think we've seen that for 10 years. I, agree. I don't think we've seen that for 10 years. I think it's left and right. I don't think we've seen that. So when I saw that, I said, I was literally in a meeting. It popped up. I said, this is old or is this new? This can't be new. What are they doing together? And I couldn't even listen to it. I sit away and listen to it. I said, well, not bad. A little bit of agreement, a little bit of Chuck pushing. This is your shutdown. It's not my shutdown. You're deciding to do Well, you shut down. didn't work. But again, like I said, if it's more left, right, we come together and uh, argue, fight, have a beer afterwards, have some good food, and then be able to figure out solutions, I think we'll head in the right direction. You know, uh, I'm more comfortable calling you sir. You're the first four-star general on, I've ever shook hands with. I was a specialist when I got out of the Army. You know what a specialist. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an E4. Heart of the Army. So for me, uh, it is a, it's a pleasure and an honor, truly, as a guy that served this military proudly to meet another four-star general. And if you have any questions, thoughts, send me a tweet and himself. We're gonna put, are you on Twitter as well, I'm assuming? Tweet us, let us know what you took away from today's sit-down with General McChrystal. Thank you so Thanks, much for your Pat. time, truly. My thank pleasure. you. Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David, and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.